0: Three weeks ago, we wrapped up chapter one of Ephesians, right? Uh, We've been studying the book of Ephesians together, and most of you have been here for that and are aware of that, but we did wrap up chapter one about three weeks ago. uh, We were looking at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, for the Ephesian believers, right? He prayed certain things for them that they would become eliminated with the knowledge of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, And so we wrapped up chapter 1 with that. We spent, I don't know, a considerable amount of time in chapter 1. I really enjoyed it. This morning we're going to uh, begin to take a look at chapter 2, but we're going to focus on verses 1 through 10. We're not going to cover 1 through 10 today. Uh, We're going to look really at verses 1 through 3, but we're going to begin chapter 2 today. I've divided our actual focus section, verses 1 through 10 in four parts, maybe four sermons, Lord willing, sometimes the Holy Spirit, well, in most cases, his plan is different than mine. So, um, but the way that I was looking at the passage, it looks like there's probably four messages here. Um, So we're going to look at verses one through three, who we were, okay, that'll be today. And then we're going to look at who we are, that's verses four through five A, that'll be next week, Lord willing. Then we're going to look at how we've become who we are. That's 5b through 9. And then why we've become who we are, verse 10. So that's how we're breaking it down. It's kind of a focus on on those things. So I I think it's going to be really cool. I'd like to uh, read our main text for the morning and then pray and then we'll get to work, okay? Here we go. Uh, Pick it up at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. Carol read this for us. Thank you, Carol we pray that this would not be just a sermon or just a you know just a, a couple of verses. Uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and move in power as this stuff is focused on and studied and notes are taken. Uh, we we do not want to just we don't want to hear uh, you know just a just a message or uh, you know some sort of illustration here or or any of that stuff. We we want to be impacted by the truth. By the scripture, and so we pray that you would do that through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. Um, I pray that lives would be changed today, that this would be a definitive moment for all of us today as we hear the truth and as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And so, uh, that is our prayer for this morning. May we be focused, attentive, and may we be impacted by your word. And may you. May you, Father, receive all the glory and honor and praise here. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so turn back real quick to chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Just pop back real quick. 22 and 23, it says, And he put all things, this is Paul Talking here, he says, and he put all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, notice with me, okay, so that's where we were three weeks ago. Now, notice with me the first word of chapter two, right? Verse one, and see that? What we see here was that Paul was continuing his writing, continuing his thoughts. Uh, we must remember that when Paul wrote Ephesians, uh, it was not, he did not divide it into chapters. He didn't put section titles or any of that. Um, that, those things were done later by Christians and they were done, uh, for a couple of really good reasons. I would think, First of all, it makes the Scripture easier to read and maybe to comprehend, although there's a little difficulty with that because the only way to comprehend is the Holy Spirit. But in any case, since it's broken into chapters and there's little headings and stuff, it makes it easier for us to read. And so that came later. So what we want to notice here is that the first word is and. Paul is still writing. He's still speaking. He didn't write chapter 1 and then take a couple of weeks off and then get back into it. He's still expressing... His thoughts here. He's still speaking to them. He's still addressing them with the same breath, if you will. Um, I I sort of, because I've read through Ephesians a few times now, and it really seems like he wrote this letter in one sitting. You just go through it and read it. And, and if you want to, look at each chapter and how each chapter begins with a therefore. There's a couple of them that begin with therefore, you know. The chapters are divided in the middle of him expressing thought, which means that he probably just, you know, and I don't know if he even wrote it with his own hand, he probably was in the Holy Spirit and reciting, and maybe somebody was, you know, a scribe was writing. I don't know how it went down, but for the most part, I believe he just, it was one shot. It was one shot. Look at the beginning of chapter 6, how it begins. It's its right in the middle of him talking about how families should live. It begins with the word Children. I mean, he's expressing thought here. So I think this was one continuous bit of literature, bit of Scripture. He was doing that. Here we see. He's continuing to speak. No pause, no break. He's rolling. He's going. Now, one of the things that Paul wanted the Ephesians to come to understand is the power of God. Okay? He he prayed that the Holy Spirit would reveal this power to them not in a saving way because they were already saved they were already christians but in a sanctifying way because if we go back and look at chapter 1 verse 19 we see that's what he's praying for he's praying that they would come to know in a deeper way uh the the things that are in christ more particularly the power of god that raised christ and did these things so this is something that he wants them to come to know and and i am convinced that this is something that I need to come to know in a deeper way, that every believer needs to come to know in a deeper way, right? The power of God, because it's, it's, it's through the power of God and in the power of God that we've been made Christians. It's in the power of God and through the power of God that we are sanctified and made more like Christ each day. It's through the power of God, in the power of God, that we are kept in Christ. And so it makes all the sense in the world to study the power of God or to pray that that is something that we would come to know in a deeper way. And that is exactly what Paul did at the end of chapter 1. Now, what we see here in our text, what we're going to begin to see is that now what he's doing is he's been praying that they would know the power of God in a deeper way, right? In a sanctifying way, a growth way. Now he begins to give them an example of the power of God through how God overcame their previous spiritual condition. There's the link right there. That's what's happening right here. In verses one through three, Paul describes who they were before they experienced the power of God in salvation in and through Christ the Lord. That's what he's doing here. Or to put it more plainly, what he's doing is he's, he's Showing them who they were before Christ and before the power of God. They experienced the power of God. Now, this text is absolutely universal. Okay? It not only describes who the Ephesians were before Christ, but who we were before Christ and who everyone in the world is apart from Christ. The text kind of takes care of all of those things, who they were, who we were, who we might still be if we don't have Christ, and who every unbeliever is outside of Christ. The text handles all of that, so it's pretty pretty amazing. And what we'll see is that Paul lists four things in this passage, okay? And the way that I kind of want us to look at it is like this. There's four things in the passage we're going to look at, and the things that we're going to look at are just the scripture. If you're a Christian, this is who you were before Christ. This, this is who you were before you came to know the Lord. If you are not a Christian, this is who you are now. Okay? So that will be our emphasis and focus. So I'd like for you to look at number one with me. Okay? This is going to be verses 1 through 2a. 1 through 2a. Look at the text. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay? Paul tells the Ephesians that prior to them coming to know Christ in a saving way, they were basically dead in their sin. They were dead in the sins in which they walked. Now this is one of the most important truths of all time absolutely one of the most critical, important, crucial truths of all time, okay? People today do not rightly understand the human condition. They don't. Now, most people, I would say, the high majority are usually willing to admit that humanity is plagued by some problems, right? Okay? But They will admit this. If you talk to them about human nature or the way that people are, they'll say, well, yeah, there's obviously some issues and problems, right? Most people are are fairly rational, somewhat logical, right? I like Paul. how Paul snickered because he immediately thought, no, they're not, right? (laughs) Rational. (laughs) It's true. But most people, I think, will admit that there, there are some problems plaguing humanity, right? I mean, just watch the news. You know, yet, and yet they may be willing to say that humanity is plagued by some problems, okay? Uh, I, I think that most people will admit to that, but they are completely oblivious to the source of these problems. Absolutely blind, just clueless and and they'll blame you know the human condition and human behavior. Uh, Human action, uh, they'll blame it on upbringing. Well, what you don't understand is Fred, I hope there's nobody in here named Fred. uh, Fred, you know, the reason why he behaves the way he is is because of his parents, you know. Apparently they have a lot of money because that's how people with money speak, right? Or people that are slow of speech, uh, right, you know. They'll blame, well, you've know, you got to understand his upbringing. you got to understand what he came up in, man. His parents are like, woo, 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 you know, and that's why he's, he's like that. You know, they're blaming those things. They, they blame upbringing. They blame uh, chemical imbalances, you know. Well, you know, he's really hot and cold. You know, it, that, that's the reason why human nature is the way that it is, because of chemical imbalance and these things. And, I, and when I say these things, I'm, I'm not rejecting the idea of them, believe me. Mental illness is blamed all the time, right? You know, and, and so on and so forth. You know, and, 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 and here's the thing, is that, that people believe that people can be changed just absolutely. Like, here, here's the antidote to the human condition, right? Which is mental illness. Whatever these things are, here's the antidote. Psychiatry, psychology, uh, rehabilitation, a.k.a. prison. I haven't met, and I've, I've met quite a few people who have been to prison, and I, I, none of them say, "Well, I tell you what, you know that was the most rehabilitative thing I've ever been a part of. It was fant- I, came, I went into it as this kind of guy and came out as, "Hey, I've got it together. you know? I, 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 I'm not saying that there can't be rehabilitation kinds of qualities there, but it's prison, you know? I think it's do or die, it's survival. You know, so they'll say that medicine is, you know, right? We have a pill for everything today, right? You know, I've just been real tired lately. Take this, you know, what was it? You know, crystal. Oh, great. You know, next day I need more, you know, there's a pill for everything. There's a drug for everything. You know, all of it, all of these things are meant to treat the human condition, right? Or whatever's plaguing a person. And yet, people do not understand the root of our problem as people, and that is sin. That's it. That's the baseline. That is the baseline. Sin is why we have violence. Sin is why we have murder. Sin is why we have war. Sin is why we have racism. Sin is why we have Ashley Madison, a.k.a. sexual immorality. Sin is why we have divorce. Sin is why we have disease, believe it or not. Sin is why we have death, Romans 6.23. The wage of sin is death. Sin is why we behave the way we do. It is the underlining problem of human nature. It's the base. Now, the Bible provides the clearest and simplest explanation for the human condition. Paul did it right here in our text, did he not? Uh, People are spending all this time and money and research trying to figure out what's wrong with us. The Bible just said what's wrong with us. We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walk. Sin is our problem. Look how simple it is right there. And yet the people are going, that just doesn't make sense. Most people think that they're good Amazingly, people who commit horrendous acts still at some point in their mind and heart still think that, well, there's an aspect of me that's good. Humanity has a sin issue, but when you preach this truth, people say things like, well, let me give you my understanding of it. We are still evolving as people. And, and we will eventually evolve to the point of perfection. So we're still in this evolutionary process. You know, we're not mu- mo- we're not goo. We're not fish. We're not monkeys any longer. Now we're people. But we've got to advance to the next level. And I'm kind of hoping it's like a pterodactyl or something. I don't know. It'd be cool to fly. But, They think that somehow that, you know, we're in this process of evolution and that somehow we're gonna be, we're become, we've become men and women, and yet we're going to evolve into a super type of human or something like that. Um and so what they say is just give, okay, I know there's problems, I know there's issues, get rid of that sin idea. Just give humanity more time. And I'm like, a couple more billion years? I don't think we're gonna make it. I feel like sometimes when I watch the news, which has now become sin for me um, it's because of what I do when I'm watching, you know, I feel like we're not going to make it like another week at times when I watch the news, you know, it's, it's, it's lunacy. It's crazy what's happening, but let me tell you why people say, well, we're just evolving or whatever, or they, you know, reject the sin, the scripture that says sin in these things, these realities, these truths. Let me, let me tell you what people are actually doing. It's called deflection. People who do not want to face reality, these are the things they say. This is why they deflect. They are afraid of the truth. They do not want to discover in a deeper way what they already sense is true. Right? We have consciences. I I get it. We can sear them pretty bad with a lot of sin. But for the most part we have the ability to discern right from wrong in a sense not in a spiritual way at all but in physical ways everyone knows deep down inside that what they're actively engaged in if it's wrong it's wrong they know to a degree but what they do is they suppress deflect run Argue, debate, make up insane philosophical ideas and expressions in these things. Uh, I can tell you that I spent more time on this earth as an unbeliever than as a believer. And I-, I knew without a doubt there was something wrong with me. Pretty much my whole life. But I can tell you I wasn't willing to really admit to it or to really do anything about it. That's part of the human condition, right? And this is one of the reasons why people stay so busy today, right? Have you, everyone in here has lived for a few years, even my youngest son, Ian there and his pal John, we've been around long enough, but can you recall a time before now where people were as busy as they are? Are you insane? People are, it's insane. I'm busy. People are busy today. Jumping from one thing to the other, running over here to do this, running over here to do that. People are so busy today. It's incredible, right? I I think that sometimes that has to do with, or it at least impacts our church attendance, or any church's attendance, because I'm just busy. And if they're not busy, if we're not busy, then we're extraordinarily tired because of how busy we've been. And I just couldn't get up, man. People deliberately fill their schedules with activities and social engagements, stuff to do, stuff to keep themselves busy. Why? To avoid being alone with only their thoughts. I think that's probably one of the most scary and intimidating things in this day and age, is being alone with only my thoughts. Not for me personally. I like solace. I like to get away now. But for the majority of people, that's a terrifying thing. Even when they're alone, they're doing something, right? There's a reason why PlayStation 12s and Xbox Deluxe, these things sell the way they do video games. That's something that you can do when you're alone. That keeps you busy and engaged, right? I mean, when people are alone, they're not even not busy. I mean, you know, it, I'm alone. This is busy. People can't even sit still for a minute. People are like children today. I think it has to do with not wanting there to be like a real sense of quiet and that now all they're left with are their thoughts. You know, I've been in the car stereo business for a lot of years, and that's what, part of what I do to earn a living. And, you know, and people will come in and oh, oh, I, you know, it's like the desert, oh, oh, man, my stereo went out two weeks ago. I can't handle the commute anymore. Why? I just, no music. I just can't sit there with it being quiet. And then all I, you know, I can't sing. And so I just sit there and all I do, you know, they go on American Idol all the time. Right. Uh, and, you know, I can't, I just can't do it. I need music. I can't be left to myself and to my thoughts and all this. You know, that's what they say. They come in, oh, save me. And I'm like, for $2.99, I will. You know, I mean, it's, you know, yes, I am your Messiah. Here's a pioneer, you know, they can't be alone. They can't, the commute, you know, I have to say when I first became a Christian, I was uh, uh, commuting a little bit, I think. I, I can't remember what I was doing, but there were there was a time where I was driving somewhere years ago, and, and, and I loved that time where I didn't have stuff on, and I could just, you know, I could just pray, you know. You know, no, I didn't close my eyes. You ever pray with your eyes open when you're driving? I do it all the time. I loved that time. But people, man, they are absolutely frightened of these things. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to be alone with their thoughts. They don't want to ponder the deeper things. Sin is not only one of the most important truths of all time because it's our foundation. It's our base. Now we can understand why we do what we do. We behave the way we behave. We think the way we think, right? It's not only one of the most important truths, right? Fundamental, foundational, but it's also one of the most misunderstood. Completely misunderstood by most and not just by unbelievers, but especially by believers. The unbeliever, we get it. They, they don't have the Holy Spirit and, you know, why would they understand these spiritual things? We, we can't have that expectation for unbelievers, right? We pray for them, we encourage them. But boy, should we have this expectation for believers, right? But they're like, sometimes. They just don't understand sin. People are not merely infected by sin as if it were some sort of treatable virus or bacteria, the things you deal with in nursing, the medical field. Sin is not a disease, like I hear pastors say all the time. Because when I hear disease, I think of, okay, then there's some sort of a cure. And we know, in a spiritual sense, there is a cure in a way, but That's not what I mean. Sin is not a flu. It's not a cancer. How many times have you heard said, well, sin is like a cancer. It just eats us up. Well, there's some truth to that in a sense, but let me tell you, let me assure you that it's broader and deeper and wider than disease. Sin has not made mankind sick. I've heard this. You know, mankind, our problem is sin, and we're all sick with sin, right? Let me tell you what sin has done. It has not made mankind sick. It has made mankind dead. We are dead in sin. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's not like, oh, sin. It's like we're, we're cold. We've got no life in us. It has not made mankind humanity sick. It has made humanity dead. Sin has killed mankind. That is what Paul wrote here. He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Let me tell you something. This is really interesting. Dead in the original language means dead. Light bulb. It means zero life. It means zero ability. That's what it means. Now what kind of deadness did Paul have in mind here as he wrote this? What was the Holy Spirit impressing upon his heart as this was penned? Was he referring to physical deadness? No. Physically dead people cannot do what the text says, right? Walk in trespasses and sins. That'd be an interesting trick. The walking dead. You watch the show? Not bad. Physically dead people... He's not talking about physical death because physical dead people can't do what the text says. Walk in trespasses and sins. Physically dead people are inanimate. They do not move unless they are moved by someone else paul was referring to spiritual deadness what does it mean to be spiritually dead first we must remember that death is literally the opposite of life i mean this is this is logic okay you have you have death i wonder what the opposite of death is sick, no life, life, breathing, death, no breathing, right? I, and I believe me, when I say this, I'm not talking down to you. I know there's a hint of sarcasm here and, you know, the acting it out. But, you know, I'm just telling you, people come up against it like, hmm, well, let me tell you. It is what it is. Death is the opposite of life. Death is the antithesis to life. Death is the absence of life. When the Bible, now this is interesting, when the Bible speaks of life, it does so in relationship to God. God is what? The author of life? He is the giver of life? Life is always in the Scripture associated with the One who gives and grants it. With who is the holder of life. The grantor of life. Okay? This is Bible 101. Those who know God, those who are in relationship with Him, right through Jesus Christ, are spiritually alive. They are connected to the source of life, we'll say. Those who do not know Him, those who are not in relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, are the opposite. Spiritually dead. Now, spiritual life and spiritual death must be thought of, they must be thought of in terms of one's relationship to God. As I said, this is Bible 101. MLJ wrote... So we can define life like this. Life is to know God, to be in relationship to God, to enjoy God, to correspond with God, to be like God, to share the life of God, and to be blessed of God. According to the Bible, that is life. Therefore, as we come to define death, we must define it as the opposite of all of that. Now, there is a... I I think we all get it, right? We're all tracking with each other. We're like, yeah, man, I'm hitting on all eight. Right? We get it? Now, there is a faulty line of thinking, which is very popular today that I feel that I must address. People say that we have the power or the ability to spiritually... Like, I'm talking about natural man, unsaved man, the guy who doesn't know Jesus... They say that people have the ability to spiritually or to incline themselves to God in a spiritual way on their own. That we can do this on our own or maybe with a little help from my friends, no, from the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question I have for those who would say such a thing that, you know, that we just, the way that we are, I don't know God, but I can still bring myself before Him. I can incline myself to him in a spiritual sense? Uh, My question to, to, to folks that think that way, and these are truths that I've wrestled through before. These are things that I still wrestle with at times. But here's the question. How can a person who is spiritually dead incline him or herself to God who is spirit? I mean, we're talking about spiritual things here. How can a person who's spiritually dead incline themselves spiritually to a spiritual God or to God who is spirit? How can they do that on their own? Wouldn't that person need to be first brought to spiritual life before they could do that? Of course. Now, spiritual corpses cannot move themselves spiritually just as a physical corpse cannot move itself spirit or physically, right? Same thing, same parallel. In order for a physical corpse to be able to move itself physically, it must be brought to physical life. If something isn't done to it to where it comes back to life and starts moving on its own, it's going to lay there dead. It's not going to get up on its own. Something has to be done to it. The same is true with a spiritual corpse. In order for a spiritual corpse to be able to move itself toward God spiritually, it must first be brought to spiritual life. And I'd like to submit to you that this idea of getting assisted, you know, we're spiritually dead, right? Getting a little assistance from the Holy Spirit. This is insanity. The Holy Spirit is not in the business of assisting spiritually dead people he's not a mortician he doesn't take the spiritually dead corpse slap some makeup on it put some fine clothes on it fold its hands like this that person's still dead so he's not a mortician he is not in the business of assisting spiritually dead people now some cite John 644 they say They read this out loud maybe and they say, okay, listen, here's the the text. No one can come to Me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent Me draws them and I will raise Him up on the last day. They say draws is a form of assistance where the Holy Spirit gently leads us toward God without violating our free will. Now there are several problems with this interpretation. First, draws is a really really cool word. It's Helkuo in Greek and it reminds me of Hercule Poirot. I love that show. You ever watch the mystery guy, Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie? My wife and I are the only geniuses in the room. It, literally, that's how it's pronounced. Helkuo. And what it means. Listen to what it means. And I, I, I challenge you, go get a court concordance. Go do something. Go look at, go look at draws on your own. Don't, don't take my word for it. Go look at it in the original language on your own. Here's what it means. To pull in, to drag, to lead by force. Think of a word picture. Think of a drowning man being thrown a life rope and then pulled into a boat. Help does not denote subtlety or gentle assistance at all in any sense. At all. It has to do with rescue. Okay? So, first of all, draws doesn't mean little help, it means divine intervention, rescue, Drag, pulling out of something, pulling out of death into life is what it means. Second, if a man is totally corrupted by sin, how can his will be free to choose God? The will exists in the mind. The role of the will is to carry out and serve the desires of the mind. That's literally the function of the will. It is to carry out and execute the desires of the mind. That which the mind desires and wants and values, the will is there to make those things happen, to affirm them and to pursue them. That's the purpose of the will. The will is only free to the extent that the mind is free. In other words, the mind establishes the parameters for the will. Whatever the mind is capable of doing, the will can only go as far as the mind allows it to go. If the mind is bound by something and limited, then the will is also bound and limited. The will cannot usurp, it cannot bypass. It cannot go around the mind because it exists in the mind and it is there to serve the mind. So is our will free to choose? You better believe it. It is free to choose that which the mind values and desires. If the mind values and desires worldly and carnal things then the will will pursue worldly and carnal things if the mind desires spiritual and righteous things then the will will pursue spiritual and righteous things what we see in the text is that the non-Christian is spiritually dead in sin, which means that his mind and will are bound and limited by that default mode by sin. In other words, his mind, the person's mind and will are only free to focus on, desire, and choose that which pertains to its default mode, which is sin and spiritual deadness. This is why absolutely why the Bible says or calls unbelievers slaves to sin. Romans 8 or Romans 6:20, John 8:34. They are slaves to sin because in a spiritual sense because they're unregenerate, they're lost, the only thing they can pursue is things that pertain to that. To their very nature. They have an old, they have a sinful nature, if you will. They're they're dead in sin, and so they will only pursue that which has to do with that. Something else to consider. The Holy Spirit, as I said, is not in the business of assisting spiritually dead people. He is in the business of making spiritually dead people spiritually alive alive. Okay, so he's not in the business of assisting. He's in the business of giving life, resurrecting in a sense, bringing life into spiritual corpses. That's what he's in the business of. He is in the business of supernatural intervention, supernatural rescue, what? Helcuo? He does this by entering the spiritually dead person and regenerating their heart. The prophet Ezekiel described this in Ezekiel 36, 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now after regenerating the heart, he the Holy Spirit illuminates that person with the truth of God and the gospel and he implants, he imparts the gifts of faith and repentance which the recipient absolutely embraces without hesitation and begins to exercise immediately. And you got to understand, all of this stuff happens so quickly, it's really hard to figure out the order because it's like bam, 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 bam. Now this is the moment when the regeneration happens and the faith and, and the repentance are giving and the person begins to respond. This is that moment when that person for the first time ever in a spiritual way inclines themselves to God. It does not happen before. They can believe in various forms of God. They can believe in these things. They can adhere to religion and spend a lifetime in religion. I'm not saying they can't be religious. But they can never, according to Scripture, incline themselves to God Before, in the right way, the true God, the one and true God, the triune God, they cannot make a move toward Him until this work happens. Nothing happens prior to the Holy Spirit's supernatural work. If you remove the Spirit's presence and work from a spiritually dead person, he or she will remain spiritually dead and spiritually immobile. They will continue on in what MLJ, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls a living death. Because we know that unbelievers live physically, but they are dead as a doornail spiritually. They are like the walking dead in a spiritual sense. Verses 1 and 2a also point to repentance. Notice how Paul wrote, in which you once walked. In which you once walked. Prior to Christ, the Ephesians walked past tense, in trespasses and sins. But after coming to know Christ in a saving way, they began to turn away from those trespasses and sins and to walk in righteousness. Repentance does not mean sinlessness or perfection. It means to love Christ and to hate sin. That's my dollar 99 interpretation or, or definition for you. If you are a Christian, repentance will be present in your life. You will love Christ and you will hate sin. Especially your own. You will war against sin. You will battle your flesh. You will fight temptation and the devil. You will confess your sins before God and others. That is repentance, friends. Those who rail against repentance also tout, you know, this idea of unconditional love, right? You know, that that God just accepts sinners just as they are because he loves unconditionally. Like there's no requisite, there's nothing that we are to do in this scenario at all. God accepts sinners just as they are because he loves unconditionally. Really? He doesn't expect people to repent and turn away from their idols and sin? Didn't Jesus Tell the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. You see, this line of thinking that repentance isn't part of the whole scheme of things, part of God's design is what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Oh, He just loves us. I see this all the time on Facebook with Christians. This All this unconditional love. Just come to Him as you are, and there's nothing... There's nothing required of you. And and every time I read these things, I'm reminded of take up your cross, die to self. All the prophets and apostles and even Jesus preached repentance, which is a condition. So don't make the mistake of following that lie. Repentance and the Gospel go together. Now if you are a Christian, your past mode of operation was walking in trespasses and sins without a care or concern about God. That is who we were. But we've become new creations. And now we walk in repentance. And we care about God. And we are concerned about His name and His glory. Amen? Prior to Christ, the Ephesians were dead in the trespasses and sins they once walked. And guess what? So were we. Look at number two with me. Following the course of this world. That's 2b. Verse 2b. Prior to Christ, the Ephesians also followed the course of this world. What does it mean to follow the course of this world? What is the world in a biblical sense? What does he mean? Well, I'm going to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones again because what he wrote is great and it's a little long, but I know it's well worth our time because it's really good. Here's what he said. It is the outlook, he's describing the world. It is the outlook and the mentality and the organization of life apart from God. God is shut right out. It is man himself viewing and organizing life and controlling life. It is this mentality that is described as the world. I know of nothing, he says, I know of nothing which is more sad about man in sin than just that. You see it in all the newspapers. In all your newspapers you see this. Is it not sad to see the way people are governed entirely by what people think, say, and do? They are sorry for those of us who are Christian. They say, fancy shutting, uh, shutting down to that one book, those narrow, miserable Christians. So speaks the so-called broad-minded man of the world. How subtle the devil is to persuade people of that. For their life is entirely controlled by the organization of the world. They think as the world thinks. They take their opinions ready-made from their favorite newspaper. Their very appearance is controlled by the world and its changing fashions they all conform it must be done they dare not disobey they are afraid of the consequences that is tyranny that is absolute control clothing hairstyle everything absolutely controlled that is the mind of the world he goes on there is no time to elaborate on subtle almost on the subtle almost devilish Influence that is displayed often in its fashions, the world's fashions. And he says, Sex rampant. This is a sex ridden age. It comes out everywhere photographs and pictures and placards suggesting it. He says, Men's lives are being controlled by it and governed by it. All their opinions, their language, the way they spend their money, what they desire, where they go, where they spend their holidays, it is all controlled, governed completely. Surely, all this was never more evident in the world than it is today. When people talk so glibly about their emancipation, they are giving a very clear proof of the fact that they are governed and dominated and controlled by this world. The mind of the world. The age of propaganda. The age of advertising. The mass mind. The mass man. The mass individual. Without knowing it. Is it not tragic? but that is man in sin. He is spiritually dead because he is controlled by this mind of the world. End quote. If you are a Christian, you used to belong to the world that Martin Lloyd-Jones described. We were people of the world. The world was our guide. The world was our instructor, our teacher. It showed us how to act. It taught us how to speak. It showed us how to dress. It taught us how to behave, did it not? It taught us what to like and what to dislike. But, the truth changed that. The truth, for the Christian, the truth has set us free. From the world. We now possess a new understanding of the world. We can see its corruption and its secular ideas and influence. We can see its false religions and false ideas and false philosophies, right? The world has been exposed. But to the spiritually dead person, the world is God with a little g it is the object of their idol or it is the idol of their worship they are a friend to the world james 4:4 says do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god what was james talking about he was talking about not this physical world not half dome not this building. He's not talking about the physical world. He is talking about what Martin Lloyd-Jones described. It's the way of thinking. It's the mode of operation. It is life apart. Simplest way, life apart from God. Get out of here, God. That's the world. Everything in life is arranged about the individual complete rejection to God. That's the world. Prior to Christ, the Ephesians followed the course of the world, of this world, and so did we. Number three, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, verses 2c through 3a. Prior to Christ, the Ephesians followed the prince of the power of the air. What in the heck does that mean? It basically means that they belong to Satan and the demons. That's what it means. Satan is the prince. The devil is the prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Air is a reference to the the invisible or to this invisible realm that exists. It's not the air that we breathe. It is to a realm, an invisible realm that exists, right? The invisible realm where spirits move freely. Some refer to it as the spiritual or spirit realm. We cannot see this realm, right? I, I can't see it. But we can tell that it exists because we can see its effects in the world. Evil is a sign of the existence of this realm. the Bible also refers to the devil as the God of this world. okay He's not just the prince, of the power of the air. he's also referred to as the God of this world. Is the devil a literal God? No. he's a created and fallen angel. Does this mean that the physical world belongs to the devil and he is its ruler? No! I can't stand it when people say that, well, the God of this world's the devil. He ain't no God, and this ain't His world. Get that through your head. The physical world belongs to God, and He alone is its sovereign king and ruler. What does it mean then? It means that the devil is the ruler over the world that Martin Lloyd-Jones described. He rules over the outlook and the mentality and the organization of life apart from God. That is the world that he rules over. We might say that He rules over unbelief. He is also an authority figure in the spirit realm. He is the prince over all the demons. That is what Paul wrote here, basically. Over the power of the air. He is the prince. He is in charge over His aspect of that realm. The demons in that realm. He's the prince of it. The devil's work can be seen in and through the right, the spirit of the devil will say, the, the, the attitude, the actions of the devil, the spirit, his essence, can be seen in and through the sons of disobedience, which is a fancy title for unbelievers. The sons of disobedience actively engage in the devil's unrighteous, unholy acts. Paul gave two examples of this in the text, right? First, they live in the passions of their flesh. That's what he said. And second, they carry out the desires of the body and the mind. This is what unbelievers do, man. I'm a first-hand witness. That's what I did for 30-something years. I lived out the desires of my flesh. I, I lived out the passions of my flesh. I carried out the desires of my body and my mind, and my mind was dead in a spiritual way. I just did what I wanted to do. What felt good, what tasted good, what smoked good. I just did. Everything about me was about catering to the flesh and what I wanted and what I valued. Why do unbelievers do this? What has the Scripture taught us so far? They do this because they are what? Spiritually dead. And they follow the course of this world, and they follow the prince of the power of the air. You know, the devil is like the Pied Piper. He blows into his little piccolo or flute, right? And and, and unbelievers just assemble and line up behind them, and and they follow along. That's what he does. Prior to Christ, the Ephesians used to follow this prince. He was at work in them, right? They were sons of disobedience at one time. But God adopted them and made them His children. They became sons and daughters of righteousness. He put the Holy Spirit in them and the Holy Spirit became their guide, right? They're not led. They're not following the, the prince of the power of the air anymore or the ways of this world. They follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit because He is in them. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, the same thing is true of you. Lastly, look at number four. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 3b, prior to Christ, the Ephesians were by nature children of wrath. Their rebellion and sin against God who is holy had put them under His wrath. Wrath here just means anger. God was angry with the Ephesians prior to them being saved. But not just with the Ephesians, right? But with the rest of mankind, as it says. Right? It says, like the rest of mankind. Sinful, unbelieving mankind is under the wrath of God. People hate this truth today. Especially some Christians again. It's always us. You bring up the wrath of God and they say, no, 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 friend. God isn't wrathful or angry with people. He is love. I recently debated a young guy who refuses to speak up about sexual immorality. We were having a conversation about gay marriage and, and he refuses to, to even really talk about this subject. He will not address it with people. He says he's a Christian. He, he won't touch the subject, or challenge anyone, or say anyone, or encourage anyone, or preach any, or speak any truth, gossip any truth to anyone, because in regards to that subject, he, he believes doing so would be unloving and unchristlike. Now, I, I will admit that there is a wrong way to go about this subject, and I'm the captain of the wrong way team at times. I, I, I'll tell you, we should avoid meanness and anger when addressing people about these things, no doubt. That's not the spirit of Christ. And I'll tell you, it isn't easy at times because people are so, hey, it is what it is, man. Okay. You know? Let me say, but to withhold information or to abstain from engaging these things in the name of Christian love, may I submit to you, is the opposite of Christian love. It is a form of hatred. It is. They say, it's not hatred. Fool. I added the fool part right there. You can tell. It's tolerance. It's grace. It's mercy. No, it isn't. It's worldly. It is the behavior of a son of disobedience, not a son of righteousness. I'd like to submit to you also that the Bible teaches that God is loving and just and wrathful and a whole lot more. He can actually be all of those things, express all of those things. He's God. Make no mistake, sin ticks Him off. So much so that He often destroys people while they're in the middle of it. The flood, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Korah, Ananias and Sapphira. He also casts people into hell because of it. you got to think about this. We are His image bearers. We were created to reflect His glory and goodness to the rest of creation. But the image we, as unsaved people, unbelievers, the image we actually bear, the image that we reflect, is that of the devil who epitomizes sin and wickedness and unholiness and unrighteousness. So, let me ask you a question. Does God have a right to be angry with mankind because of what we've done? Of course! We have all committed cosmic treason against Him in the highest sense. Prior to Christ, the Ephesians were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so were we. We too were once children of wrath. But thanks be to God for Christ who has adopted us and made us his children, children of righteousness. We are now the beloved. That is who you are, Christian. Believe it. Now, if you are not a Christian, you are still dead in the sins You walk in. In the trespasses, you walk in. You are, friend, you are. Listen, you are following the course of this world. You are following the prince of the power of the air, the devil. You are by nature a child of wrath. That is who you are. Could it be that God, could it be that God has sent the Holy Spirit at this very moment To give you a new heart and to open your eyes and ears to the truth, to the gospel, to give you the gifts of faith and repentance. Man, if you sense that God is performing that work in your life, in your heart right now, I say, run to Jesus, flee to him. Confess your sins to Him. Believe in Him. Believe that He came into the world, that He died, that He rose from the grave for you to purchase you and to buy you and to bring you out of the world. Closing thought. I believe this text was meant to serve as a reminder Paul wanted the Ephesians to remember who they once were. He wanted them to reflect upon their past. To look back, right? Why? So they could rejoice in the present. So they could rejoice in the present. When we look back, we can see where we were years ago. Lost. A son or daughter of disobedience, a child of wrath, dead in the trespasses and sins we once walked. Maybe a babe in Christ, you know. I remember being a babe in Christ. I was a fiery preacher back then. Hey, buddy, you're going to hell. You need Jesus. That was my line. And they'd be like, and you're an idiot. And I'd be like, okay. My wife remembers when I first got saved and started preaching the gospel and how. You know, I started firestorms in my own family because because of my approach to it. And sometimes I don't think it was my approach to it. It's just that people don't want to hear it. But you can look back, right? And you can remember when you weren't a believer and what you used to do. And you can look back and see when when the Holy Spirit came and invaded your life. Praise God that He did that, right? Nobody says, oh, I wish He hadn't done that. I mean, it's just our new nature to say, hey, thank you, right? We can look back when we were a spiritual babe, whatever. And now look at us. I'm not who I was three and a half years ago when we planted this church. Not the same guy. Uh, There's hints of that goofball, but I'm not the same person that I was even three and a half years ago. I'm certainly not the same person that I was 14 years ago or whatever when I was first saved or 20 years ago when I had no clue who Jesus is. When I look back, I'm reminded of who I was. And immediately I reflect upon who I am. And I rejoice. I rejoice in the marvelous work of God, man. I rejoice in what He has done in me and on me and through me. He is making me like Jesus. I can see the progression. It's pretty cool. Moment by moment, piece by piece, bit by bit. That's what He's been doing for the last 14 years. And I know sometimes it's a slow process because I am a bonehead. But He's working. Do you rejoice in the work of God? Do you rejoice in what he has done in you and on you and through you? You should. You should look back and look at the process and look now. And here's what happens to us. You know, we still stumble and sin and trip over things and we get so defeated and we, we say to God, nothing's happened in the last 10 years. Really? That's the work of the devil. Just to keep us you know, in the, in the thought of sin and how terrible we are and, and the slightest things and the terrible things, and God doesn't love us and we haven't grown and all of that. that, that's part of the, the prince of the power of the air, that's part of his message to us. Don't believe it. If you're a Christian, listen, listen carefully. if you're a Christian, you cannot remain the same. Why? Because we're talking about the power of God. Isn't that what we've been talking about? If God saved you in and through his power, then he sanctifies you in and through his power. He sustains us in and through his power. He's changing us. How can we thwart? How can we subdue? How can we kick out his power? We're talking about God here. Don't. Don't. Believe the lie that you are now as a Christian who you were five years ago. I get it. We trip up, we struggle. And here's what's crazy about the Christian faith, right? And I know I'm going to get an amen on this because sometimes we start, we start out here, right? And man, we're like, sin, right? We're just, it's, I threw away all my DVDs and CDs. Guess what? 15, 14 years here, I bought them all back. What I'm saying is, is that what we do is we. Have these victorious seasons. And then we slip a little. And we start to kind of engage back into the things that we once did or maybe a different version of them. But that doesn't mean that all of the work of the Spirit in your life has been erased and is gone. It doesn't. It is impossible for the child of God not. To be made like Christ. Why? The power of God. I I said we can stall the process at times. We can interfere. We can be boneheads. I get it. But you can't undo what God is doing. And you can't stop Him. The devil says you can. You cannot. So do you rejoice in the work of God? Look back. And look at what he's done and I suspect that just by doing what Paul has really in a way I think I don't know if it was inadvertent I think he wanted them to look back but look back as he instructed them to do and I think that you'll find that God has been at work the whole time that you are different that things have changed yeah there's some struggle but things have changed. you're not who you were it's impossible for the Christian to be who they were 14 years ago or whatever so look back And rejoice in the now.